Hi everyone, I'm Lee Savaliksik, and this is the Artsbound Podcast, where I speak with professionals from across the performing arts industries to capture bits of wisdom, insight, and inspiration for students and young professionals exploring careers in music, theater, and dance. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Aisha Morgan Lee, the founder, CEO, and artistic director of the Hill Dance Academy Theater, a nonprofit arts education organization teaching black dance traditions to young people in the Pittsburgh region. Aisha recalls her time as a child being the only black student in her dance classes as a formative experience leading to starting this organization. She talks about the joys and the frustrations of being a founder and a CEO, as well as all of the work that's involved in the process. And you'll be able to hear that she is a person who truly shines as an organizational leader. I'd like to offer a small apology. Aisha's audio was recorded on Zoom, which has worked for us just fine in the past, and most of her audio is just fine, but Zoom has a few of its moments during our conversation. So my apologies for the bit of choppiness in a few places. I hope you enjoy my talk with Dr. Aisha Morgan-Lee. Hi, Aisha. Hello, how are you? Good. Thanks so much uh, for taking time to, to chat with us today. Um, I gave a little bit of uh, just a snapshot of what your uh, professional life is like in the intro to the episode, but why don't you just start by talking a little bit about your uh, roles both at Hadat and uh, also at Pittsburgh Kappa. Hello, I am the founder, CEO, and artistic director of Hill Dance Academy Theater, otherwise known as Hadat. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization and located in Pittsburgh's historic Hill District. Our mission is to develop and train students ages 3 to 18 in Black dance traditions, expand knowledge of Black dance traditions, and develop emerging artists to sustain Black dance as an art form in our in our Black communities. In addition to wearing that hat, which is three different hats, I am also an <laughs> adjunct uh, faculty member at Pittsburgh Capital Performing Arts School, where I teach Modern Horton to the middle school, sixth, seventh, and eighth graders. And this is my third year at Pittsburgh Kappa. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on the show. You're actually the first dancer that we've yeah. had. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it's... Um, no, not the last. No, it's certainly okay. not the last. <laughs> Um, but we've, you know, we've had me coming from a music background, uh, many of my, my contacts are musicians, but we've had several, uh, theater artists on the show as well, but I'm, I, I've been really eager to, um, to actually have this conversation with you. So I'm, I'm excited about this. Um, why don't you talk a little bit about starting Hadat? Because, um, it's kind of a, it's, it's a big deal. You, you, like you said, you wear a lot of hats there. You're very young as a founder and also as an organization that is focused specifically on uh, black tradition, black dance traditions and um, being a, a black run organization. It's a, it's a major part of the identity of the organization. I know as, as part of your personal identity as well. So, um, and how old were you when you founded Hadat? 22 years old. 22. <laughs> yeah, 22. So, um, whew, it doesn't seem that long ago, but Hadat is in its 15th anniversary. 
Okay. Years ago. Congratulations. Thank you. I started Hadad. And the interesting thing is there was a program that I had created similar to this called um, Dance on the Hill. My mom ran a program called Carlo Hill College here on the Hill District, which was prim primarily for women who were not traditional college age students. And they came back to Carlo to get their degree. And so they had a spirit on the hill, which dealt with the music. And so one year she said, you need to find a job, do something, wasn't the type who wanted to find the nine to five. And I said, well, I love dancing. I love teaching. Can we just kind of start a, a program called Dance on the Hill, which is also in conjunction with the Spirit on the Hill. And so that's what I did for um, about four years. I ran Dance on the Hill through Carlo Hill College and I was in high school. Two more years we ran it when I went to Howard University, but I couldn't keep coming back and forth. So when I finally came back to get my master's at CMU, I saw a lot of my former students and they were just asking me, are you going to do something like dance on the hill again? Are you here? You're back. Are you going to, what are you going to do? And I knew I wanted to have a dance academy. I just wasn't sure when it was going to happen. But during my time at Howard, I found that there were so many wonderful dance organizations that had wonderful product that had, you know, they had everything going for them, but they lacked the ability to have, um, to keep the payroll, to make sure the dancers were being paid. There was just so many things that even though as awesome as they were managerial wise was lacking. So I saw that aspect. Then when I was growing up dancing at Civic Light Opera Academy, I was usually the only one in my classroom, the only black dancer in the classroom dancing. And I'd look to my right and left and wouldn't see anybody who looked like me, usually in the front of the studio and the teachers didn't look like me except for one teacher. And so I wanted a different aspect for students here in Pittsburgh. So I took that, what I had in terms of me being the only one, and then the lack of managerial skills that was happening with dance companies. And I put that together to start Hill Dance Academy Theater. I wanted to make sure students, black children, had the opportunity to look to their left and right and see other black students who were dancing and look in the front of the classroom, most importantly, and see teachers who were teaching them so that they could see that, yes, I can do this. I can have a career as a professional dance artist. And at the same time, we can have a sustainable dance academy. So that's kind of how it started. Yeah, and that's a, uh, a powerful vision, and um, just really commendable that uh, that you're 15 years running now. Um, so, so tell us about the actual. You know, you're talking about how important it is to to be able to pay your dancers, and um, and for you, it's your teaching artists. Um, so, talk about the um, what it has taken for you to to recruit your teachers. Um, and then also to have uh, a business model that is sustainable to be sure that, you know, you're able to, um, you know, pay people what they're worth and, and uh, be able to continue to support yourself and your family as well. Yeah, I think it all starts um, from also just your circle, your network. I have a wonderful network of family and friends who've been very, very supportive on this journey. When we first started Hadad, I was basically teaching all the classes. Okay. I didn't really know any better. I was just like, okay, we need this class. We need this class. I can do this. Um, and then as we started growing, we started bringing teaching artists on. I'm happy to say most of our teaching artists have been with us all 15 years. Um, and so I look for teaching artists who, one, have a love for the art, 
which in specifically is for dance or whatever their genre is, because we also have teaching artists who are wonderful um, musicians and wonderful theater people. So mm -hmm. I'm looking for someone who loves what they do in terms of that art form. I'm also looking for people who are passionate about children and teaching children because we work with students ages three to 18 and that's a variety of different personalities and a variety of different learning styles and then i'm really looking for someone who understands our mission that our mission is to sustain black dance and even though some of our teaching artists are not all black they understand our mission and they accept that and they're on board with us and helping our students to be confident about who they are using that vehicle of dance. Um, and so a lot of it has really been teaching artists kind of find us and seek us out. Um, and so I'm always also looking for teaching artists who are professionals who are still doing their craft. I think that makes a huge difference when the students can actually talk to a teaching artist who went out for an audition and is still performing and actually hear about what their experience is um, and how that's helping them as the student to learn. And so uh, a lot of people, come to us. It's, it's very rare that I kind of go out and find some people because um, I guess people hear about us. Uh, a lot of people say, though, that we're Pittsburgh's best kept secret because they don't know about us. Um, and so it's a good thing and a bad thing. It's great to hear, but we want to, you know, go out there and let people know who we are. Um, and so it's just one of those things, having a really close-knit connection with people around you who are going to support what you do. Terrific. Talk to me a little about the CEO part of, of your work, right? So um, there's obviously a lot that you still do, even though you have so many teaching artists, you're, you're still doing a lot of teaching and choreographing yourself. Um, but there's a whole nother side to this, uh, to basically running a business. And, you know, it's a nonprofit organization, but um, it's, it's just a different type of business. Yeah. That was, uh, well, so that was the reason why I went to CMU. As I said that uh, during my time at Howard, I was interning, interning with a lot of wonderful black dance companies. And the one thing that was so disheartening was the fact that they were struggling on the business side of it. Um, and in learning uh, at Carnegie Mellon University, I have a master's in arts management from uh, CMU, which I basically tell people a MAM degree is kind of like an MBA, but it's dealing with the business side of the artistic of an arts organization. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I really wanted to make sure I understood what we needed to grow, what we needed to be able to be successful and sustainable, and what we needed to make sure that our teaching artists and our staff don't feel like they're living paycheck to paycheck, which most artists feel like. You know, I think that is, a, 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 not that it's a myth, but a myth that we need to kind of come away from, that, you know, a lot of people have been known to, to be that starving artist. That is not how it has to be. We have to make sure as artists that we, one, demand the pay we are supposed to get, and two, that we understand that when we hire people, we need to pay them what they're worth. Right. So they therefore can be sustainable and they can have a career out of just being an artist versus having to be an artist here and a waitress here and do this, this, that here. So that's why I went to CMU to really help me with that CEO hat. So as the, you know, the CEO is dealing with the day-to-day -day operations of the organization from small things as payroll to scheduling to you know getting meetings on the book with foundations and other people um, and community organizations to partner with like yourself and your organization to let people know who we are and what we would like to do um, it could also be day-to-day -day small things as responding to emails you know yeah. responding to phone calls um, 
really creating that vision of where you want the organization to go. You know, it's great to live in, in the moment, but always thinking about the next three to five to 10 to 15 years from now and what that looks like. Um, thinking of other opportunities in terms of where we sit in the Hill District community and making sure that our presence is known. So all of those little things happen in the day-to-day operation of things as a CEO. And then in addition to that, as the artistic director role is just, you know, the hiring of the teaching artists, the, the scheduling of the actual classes and making that work, the scheduling of the rooms and what studio is going to be used for what, um, making networks and connections with other artists who will then come in and choreograph. Um, so networking is a huge part of what I do day to day, no matter what hat I'm wearing, <laughs> um, because it's, sometimes it's just all about who you know in this business. Yeah. I'm so glad that you talked about the, the myth of the starving artist. It's actually something that I, that I touch on a lot with the, the work that I do through Artsbound. Um, I, I agree with you that like, you know, we have a, we have the term of the myth of, of something that's like totally not true, but like, I like to think about myth as kind of like the, the idea of a, of a narrative that, has always has some truth to it, but it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's mythology. It's something that kind of, it's a story that guides the way that we understand the world. And the, the, the starving artist is such the, such a powerful narrative that I think that it scares a lot of people away from pursuing careers in the arts. And then it's one of the big reasons why I started Artsbound is to say, you know, it, like you said, it doesn't have to be that way. I think some people, they like, they have the starving artist as kind of like a, like an archetype, you know, that they like, they wouldn't be living their truth if, if they weren't living that life. Um, I know people like that, that they like, they've got to do that thing. Um, but for people who don't want to do that thing, I'm, I'm, you know, one of my messages is you can still be an artist and, uh, and support a family and, you know, um, do all the other things, have the life that you, you know, desire. Yeah, yeah you definitely can. It, it, and it's really, you know, it's, it's up to us, like I said, as artists to demand that too. Yes. From, not only from our audience and our patrons, but also in, you know, realizing when artists come to us and they say to us, this is our price. Okay, let's figure out how we can make this work because they are artists. And so we don't, we shouldn't expect that something should be free or less than that in terms of what they need just to be able to live decent, decently from day to day and, you know, support their family. Yeah. So um, let's say that there's a young, either maybe a student or a young professional listening to this who has a vision, kind of like, you know, the idea that you had for Haddad, I, I want a place where, where young black dancers can come and they can see people that look like them. They can, uh, you know, receive the message that they can be a professional dancer. This is something that they can do. Um, so... Uh, and not that it's specifically that vision, but someone who's thinking like, maybe, maybe I should start an organization um, or start a company or, or whatever that would look like. Um, what would you say to them? Like looking back on your own experience, what advice could you give? Or, um, you know, would you say that there are certain dispositions as a, as a human <laughs> um, that, you know, that it that it kind of takes to to go through that process? I would definitely tell them, you know, to continue to hold fast to their dream, not letting anyone stop them. There were a lot of naysayers on this journey who said, 
don't do this, don't quit your day job, you're never going to be able to make it, it's not going to last in Pittsburgh. Unfortunately, some Black arts organizations don't have a reputation of being sustainable, so it'll last for a certain amount of time and then it'll be done. Um, and so you're going to get a lot of those people, so not to listen to them. Also, you know, my mom told me if you're going to work for yourself, it's a continuous 24 seven job. And it is there were times when you know burning the midnight oil or just it just it never stopped in terms of just making sure that that plan had developed and developed the way I needed it to and I wanted it to. So it takes a lot of consistency. Mm and keeping at it, being committed to it, even though there might be some frustrations on the along the way, but it's the most rewarding experience ever. Also being able to network. Um, there were a lot of people that I knew specifically in the black dance world. And so I just talked to them, you know, whether that's, hey, do you have a, a minute to set up a phone call with me? Have an email conversation. I'm gonna be your way in town. Can we, you know, stop and, you know, get lunch or chit chat? Because there were so many people who were doing this work before me. And so I wanted to hear from them too and learn from them and then figure out what was going to make Hadat unique and different. So those are all the things I would tell people that, you know, it definitely is possible. It's mm -hmm. just a matter of staying steadfast and holding fast to what it is that you want. And also creating a, a, a plan and a vision. You know, there was a plan of at this year, I want to do this. Yeah. And then what's the next plan? So creating goals to setting goals. So once you accomplish those goals, always thinking about what's going to be the next goal in mind so that you know it never gets it never gets old and <laughs> never mm -hmm. gets stagnant. It's always something new and constant and refreshing because you are always thinking about it and thinking about what's going to be the next step and where is this going to go. Can I ask you what you're thinking now? Oh, sure. <laughs> I know it's kind of a crazy time to, you know, we've all been kind of thrown into this mm -hmm. crazy, crazy time where the future seems really uncertain. Um, and it's apparent to a lot of people that we're kind of on the cusp of, of a big transition kind of in, in life and society. And so, yeah. So what are you thinking about for Hadat in the future? Uh, a couple of things. I'm, I'm thinking the immediate future, I'm thinking about what, what, what is that going to be come January, right? Which is still dealing with all that we're dealing with now with COVID. Um, so what does that look like for our organization in January? But then also still planning that knowing that this is not going to last forever. So I have to be thinking about 2021, 2022 season. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You know, because if we if this hadn't happened, I would have still been planning 2021 2022 season in terms of lining up the choreographers lining up the dates for the venue so still having to do that work and being able to immediately have a plan A, B or C because you just don't know what's going to happen. And then always my constant uh, thought is trying to make sure that we grow as an organization into our own facility. So I'm always thinking about that and what does that look like? And in particularly now um, during COVID, what does that look like? Uh, and using this time to make some things happen that we might not have been able to do just because the hustle and the bustle and the grind of day-to-day -day operations. So that's where my, my immediate thoughts and further thoughts are right now. Okay. You mentioned, as you were just kind of talking about what it is to be a founder, a CEO, the the challenges, and also I think you said you know it's one of the most rewarding things ever. Um, can you talk a little bit about you know what have been some of your bigger frustrations? 
some of our, our challenges are, uh, I think of them in three folds okay. that are continuously challenges. One is that people um, downplay young people. So we work with, like I said, students ages three to eight. And I can't tell you how much I have to fight about and argue that these dancers that we are training, we are training them to be on a professional stage. So when you come and you pay a ticket price, you are not just seeing cute children on stage dancing. There is nothing cute about it. Yes, they are beautiful children, but they are doing wonderful work, yeah. artistically sound quality work and so having trying to convince people about that um it really doesn't happen until they see them and then it's just like oh my gosh i can't believe that those were children or oh my goodness that was a phenomenal professional you know production that you put on you know it takes a lot for us to do that but that's what we are here and i think some that's what we're here for i think some people as adults we forget that as children that's where we started with that sparkle of what we wanted to be Right. And then that's how we then made sure that we did all we could as we grew older to make sure we got to that end product. And I think we forget that as adults. So it's just like, oh, they're children, you know, but that's it. I think the biggest, uh, the second biggest challenge for us is funding. Okay. You know, uh, I was on a, I heard something the other day where one of the funders said it's unfortunate, but most of the black arts organizations get like 4% of the funding dollars. That's absolutely crazy. It's ridiculous. It is. And so we fight and we fight and we fight. And sometimes you have to think for what? Because when, when are they going to see that we deserve and we need more to make sure that we can sustain ourselves? And I think the third one would be for us is the facility mm. and having a facility that we can continue the work that we do and that our students should be able to have all of the high quality things that you need as a dance artist inside of your facility to do your work. And when you don't have those resources, it makes it even more challenging. Yeah, I was going to say, obviously, you know, challenge number two and number three are pretty closely mm -hmm. tied to each other. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So those would be my, my things that are have that continue to be challenging for us. Mm -hmm. um, and they continue to also be frustrating <laughs> in the same process. Sure. Well, on the flip side, can you share um, maybe like a story or two uh, of of some of the experiences that have been most rewarding, most fulfilling for you? I have two that I can talk about because we have two seniors, uh, Erica Durden and Bria Wright. Both of these young ladies came to us when they were three years old. They are wow. 19 and ready to graduate and they have only been trained by us and they are phenomenal. Um, and it's because of those two and a number of them before them that we knew we had a product. And we say that because Bria, and I tell this story all the time, she knows it. She came to us at three and she cried every day. <sighs> she did not want to stay. She wanted us, her dad worked down the street from us. She wanted us to take her back down the street to her dad. She wanted to know when her dad was going to pick her up. She just literally, she would probably cry from the time they dropped her off at like nine o'clock. And it wasn't until like about one that we probably got her finally like settled down but she just cried the whole entire time. But when it came time for our showcase at the end, she knew everybody's parts. <laughs> hers. So she had been watching. 
And I always pair her up with another student when they come in at three, if they start crying. Cause I said, look, this is Bria. She's been crying. She cried all the time. And look at her now. She is a phenomenal dancer. Both of them, very two, two different qualities as a dancer. Very, very strong, um, can be professional dancers out there in the world, but very different uh, qualities about themselves. And also very two humble young ladies. Mm. Erica Durden came to us at three also. Her and Bria came at the same time. Um, I remember her always with this blanket. She wouldn't let this blanket go. And I couldn't understand what in the world is with this blanket and this three-year-old when we're supposed to be dancing. <laughs> blanket. Um, and then when she would dance, her parents would ask me if I would um, get her off the stage because she was always so fast. She was never on count with anybody else. She was always doing the movement like 50 million times faster than it was supposed to be. And she didn't have an idea about her space and her awareness. Like they were afraid she was gonna literally fall off the stage. And when I look at these two now and I think about whoo, the journeys we've been on with them from three to 18, I would, have, I would not have imagined that I would get these two phenomenal dancers out of them. And for them to now, other students look up to them. You know, they, they know and see the, the parts that they get when they audition. They usually, if they audition, they get in every single piece because they are that, that strong, that good, that solidness with their technique. Um, and so now they look up to them and it's been wonderful to see that they've grown. And I can remember for each of them when it clicked for mm -hmm. them, that finally they were coming into their own as young dance artists and not just students anymore. And so when you get that, it's just awesome to see. And then you have your little ones who are here. You know, I think of another young lady, Nadia. Nadia Platt came to us at um, three and at four years old, she was in level one, which is unheard of, but she was coming. She was, you know, she thought of herself as a, as a big girl in terms of coming to dance class, doing all she needed to do. And when it was time to put her back in her right level, she says, oh no, that's not for me. I'm in level one now. This is where I belong. And she, she holds her own. <laughs> she does a phenomenal job, you know? <laughs> so I just think about sometimes just the gumption and confidence that these young students have that they get from dance. And it's just absolutely phenomenal to see. That's great. There are many stories like that, but those are some of them that just come to mind. <laughs> That's great. Well, you obviously have the heart of a teacher and a mentor, and um, it's just awesome to hear you talk about uh, those students who, um, and your pride uh, in them is, uh, is, is telling. And it must be awesome to be at this point have, having celebrated uh, you know, a 15 year anniversary and, and these are the students that you're uh, able to kind of see out into the world now. Yes, yes, it is. it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome. That's the rewarding part of it. You know, like I tell the students, and we talk about that here a lot, the rehearsals, as you know, the rehearsals, the practices, all those things, that's just, you know, a little bit of the icing. But the, the cake part where you get to enjoy it is the performance, you know? Yes. And so that's the same thing with them when you get to see them blossom and they get to that point of being on stage and performing and you just sit back and think about all the rehearsals where you were just like, are you going to get this right? Can you do this on this count? What is going on? And then they show up and show out. It's just phenomenal. Is there anything else, uh, Aisha, in your own upbringing, childhood education um, that you, you know, you mentioned uh, dancing at the Civic Light Opera and being the only black student there. Um, and your experience in the Masters of Arts Management. But is there anything else that, as you reflect back and kind of look at your own experience, um, either any 
of your own like turning points where you said, you know, this is this is really what I what I want to do or anything in your education or training that you think really prepared you for what you're doing now? Well, a couple of things. I will say that um, my parents were very supportive and that's a huge thing as parents and even as a parent now in being able to support our children. We support them in everything that they do, but really supporting them when they want to take an artistic role mm. and helping to encourage them. You know, I see a lot of students where they don't want to go into the career as dance because their parents have told them that you're not going to make any money, right? My parents never said that. I, right. I, I was like a starving artist. I don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> because they were always like, what do you need to do? What school do we need to put you at? What dance class do you need? What extra training do you need? They were very supportive of it. Um, and so as parents, we just need to be very supportive, especially if our child has an interest in dance. And I say dance because the arts in general are not high on the list, but dance is definitely at the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to talking about arts, you know? It's a little different when people think of musicians, um, a little bit different sometimes when they think of the theater world and being an actress on stage or even in a movie in Hollywood, and then it's like dancers. What are you going to do with that, you know? And uh, just being able to have to kind of change and shift the narrative of that. You know, I always say I wish that people would see dancers like they see athletes and we would make as much money as those athletes make because we are. We're doing so many different things athletic wise with our body. Um, and we also know there are a lot of athletes who take dance class. Yeah. Being really supportive as parents of that career and making sure that when we hear conversations that we are changing the narrative of how people talk about the arts and specifically about how they talk about dance. Um, the other thing is Howard University had a huge impact on me. Mm -hmm. um, at the time when I went to Howard University, HU, Howard University, HU was the only historically black college and university that had dance as a major. Okay. Since then, Alabama State University now also has dance as a major. So that was big because I wanted to go to an HBCU. I believe there was like 106 of them at the time and only one of them had dance as a major. And wow. so I was able to experience everybody, anybody who was black in the dance world, thanks to our mentor who has since passed away, Dr. Sherelle Berriman Johnson. I mean, she opened our world to so many people, so many forms and facets of black dance. It was unbelievable. And so that's what I wanted. I wanted to be able to create that experience for my students at a younger age three to 18 here in Pittsburgh that I received when I was in DC at Howard during those four years. Um, and I have a lot of those connections still. So it's absolutely wonderful um, to, to continue to, to keep that network alive. Um, I think the other thing would probably be, you know, it's okay to, to pivot. It's okay to take a, a different way or a different approach to doing something. Um, you know, sometimes you have it all worked out this is how it's going to happen. And then next thing you know, it gets all jumbled up. That's not how it goes. And it's okay to be like, okay, I have to take a step back, change direction, figure out what it is that I'm going to do, take something out um, and make it work for you. And that's yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. Uh, as someone who also has, has made uh, one or two significant pivots, uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, you're also not the first podcast guest to talk about the importance of, of parental support. Uh, and um, I've actually been thinking about doing like a, a, a parent special episode where, and having a parent come on to talk about what it's like to 
have their kids say, hey, I want to go into the arts. Because I think, again, like I, some of the, we pick up that narrative of the, the starving artist or we pick up anxiety about, I don't know if I can do this. Um, a lot of that comes from parents or mentors or teachers or just, um, you know, the other uh, present adults in our lives. And, um, and so, yeah, I've been thinking about, you know, having, maybe, maybe I could get your mom on. Oh, yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, and I have a number of parents, too, of our own who would love to talk to you about that, both who have been artists and those who haven't been artists at all. And they're like, what is this? Right. What are we, what are we about to get into? What yeah, is right. adventure going to be that would love to speak as parents, as parent support? Oh, yeah, that's an awesome idea. Well, any, uh, any last uh, words of, of wisdom or advice that you would pass along to someone listening? I would just say, you know, go for it. That's what you want to do. And you want to be an artist and artist as an entrepreneur, the sky's the limit, especially nowadays. And just always remember your network and your connections and make sure that as you're passing through the journey that you talk to people, you collect their information. You always, you know, have it somewhere in a notebook or something because you never know when you might need it. I mean, what I'm learning in this business is it's, some, it's really about who you know. Um, and just, you know, you might not need it right away. It might not come back till five years from now, but the fact that you have somebody to pull from in that network will help you get to where you need to be and also help your support system for what it is you're trying to do. Awesome. So, yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you so much. Thank you. you yeah, too. thank you. Many thanks to Dr. Aisha Morgan Lee for this great conversation. If you or someone you know is exploring careers in the performing arts and you'd like to learn about how coaching can help support your efforts, you can do so by visiting artsboundcareerdesign.com. Chris Lidecker composes our music. I'm Lee Savaliksik. Thanks for listening.